You may be seated. Our Bible reading for tonight is taken from Zechariah chapter 5. That's page 945 in the church Bible. Uh, For those uh, who might be new or visiting, uh, we come to this part of our service where we study God's Word. Um, You'll notice here at Donville that our approach to preaching isn't, um, isn't so much like a TED Talk or a motivational speech. Uh, But we try to study the Bible, unpack the Bible, and understand its relevance to us today, knowing that God's Spirit helps us to understand. So we are going to look at Zechariah chapter 5. We're in the middle of the book, in the middle of all of these different visions that he has had. And tonight we are going to look at two visions, uh, the vision of the scroll and the vision of uh, the woman in a basket. So uh, why don't we read God's word, I'll lead us in prayer, and then, um, and then I'll explain it. This is God's word. Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse That goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it, the scroll, shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and bones. Then the angel who talked with me, came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see this, what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Well, let's um, come before God. Let's ask for his help in understanding this a vision. There are some difficult things in there, and so we need God's help in understanding it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We recognize that um, all of Scripture is inspired and is useful for us. Lord, give us understanding that we might know uh, what you have said, why you have said it, and its relevance for our lives today. Lord, help me as I preach your word to preach it faithfully, clearly, and that your people might be blessed by it. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin with um, a question. And the question is this. If you could get rid of anything in the world, what would it be? My answer, I've gone around to the whole office asking them this question. My answer was cats. Um, I asked my daughter. She said it was spiders. Uh, I asked Michelle, uh, she nearly got thrown out of the office. She said, Richmond supporters. (laughs) On a more serious note, if you were to ask any doctor, they would say disease. 
If you were to ask any soldier, they would say, war. And while these next two visions in Zechariah teach us what God hates, they tell us what God hates, he hates sin, and that God is going to rid the world of sin. That's really the main point of these two visions. God is going to rid the world of sin. And in the first vision, the message teaches that God is going to rid the world of sinners. And then in the second vision, that God is going to rid the world of sin. And I'll explain that as we go along. But let's start with vision one, and let's look at verse one. And we see this flying scroll. You all know what a scroll is, right? Um, a scroll is, um, is an ancient uh, form of uh, literature. It's the way that they recorded uh, their books was on a, on a scroll, a piece of parchment that is rolled up. And so Zechariah sees this scroll. And in verse 2, he says that it's 20 cubits by 10 cubits. In metric, that, is, that works out to roughly 10 meters by 5 meters. So we're talking, you know, double the size of the stage, if my measurements are right. And it's, it's not just any scroll, it's a flying scroll. And it's not hovering in one place, but we see in verse 3 that the scroll is traveling, that it's gone out to the ends of the earth. It begins in, say, Jerusalem, and it goes to Judea, and then it goes on to India and China and Australia and America, and it, and it really travels around the whole world. So it's huge, it's flying, and it's visible to everyone. It's large. Uh, it would be something comparable to perhaps a modern-day billboard. You know, you're driving down East Link, and you see that electronic sign, and it has a message on it. Uh, it's something like that. And it's large enough for anyone uh, to see it and read its message. And there is a message on this scroll. And we see the first part of this message is that it's a message, that the message is a curse. The message is a curse. That's what verse 3 says. What's a curse? Uh, if you were to think of a curse, you probably are thinking uh, of voodoo or some kind of witchcraft. That's often what we associate with that word curse. But in the Bible, a curse is much different than that. A curse is the opposite of a blessing. Now, what's a blessing? Every Sunday, you, at the end of the service, you receive a blessing. You might receive uh, the ironic blessing from the book of Numbers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. A blessing is a message of God's favor to his people. It's that reminder that God has accepted us and, and uh, shows us his favor. A blessing, a curse is the opposite of a blessing. So if we were to flip that blessing that I just shared with you on its head and turn it into a curse, it would go as follows. And R.C. Sproul uh, writes this. Uh, a curse might be, may the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back on you and remove you from his presence forever. That's the opposite of a blessing. It's a curse. And we see on this, uh, on this scroll a curse. It's bad news. It's news that God is not happy with his people. And we find curses at times throughout the Bible. Where is the first curse that we find in the Bible? In Genesis chapter 3. And there's this message of God's displeasure and his disapproval of his people in Genesis chapter 3. 
a message of God's curse. And in Genesis 3, we see that God's people have been driven away from God's presence because of their sin. And then, and then again in the book of Exodus, we see a, a warning that is given to Moses, a covenant that's given to Moses, really. And in this covenant, God is, uh, Moses, is, Moses and the Israelites are promised that they will receive God's blessing if they obey his commands, and they will be under God's curse if they disobey his commands. And if they obey his commands, they will be allowed to stay where? In the promised land. And if they disobey God's commands, they will be driven from where? The promised land. And so in the book of uh, Exodus in Deuteronomy, we, we see the same principle that those who disobey God's law will be driven away from God's presence. And the principle here is that sin has consequences. And one of those consequences is that when we sin, there is this, this, we, we are driven away from God's presence, um, apart from Christ. Sin does have consequences. Now, I don't need a, you don't need a pastor to tell you that. Um, if, if you get caught speeding, you will get a fine. If I decide to cheat on my taxes and I get audited, I will likely get a fine. If I decide to go to, let's say, Parliament and vandalize it with a Canadian flag, well, I will get a fine. So sin has, a, has consequences. And really, that's what the, this flying scroll is communicating. Sin has consequences. That if you choose to sin, if you choose to live in the promised land and sin against God, if you choose to lie and steal, you will be driven away from God's presence yet again. Now we see again these two crimes that are written on the scroll. The first crime is theft, which is a sin against your neighbor. The second crime is perjury, which is a sin against God. What's perjury? Perjury is, is essentially um, a form of dishonesty. It, it is swearing to God that something is true when you know, in fact, that it's not true. So, for example, perjury happens when I swear to God that I didn't eat the cookies in the cookie jar, but, in fact, I've eaten five cookies in the cookie jar and there's still crumbs on my shirt. That's perjury. You're, you're making an oath before God uh, that something is true when you know it's not. And the reason why this scroll... Uh, states uh, lying or states perjury and theft as the two crimes that are that receive God's curse is likely because these two crimes were prevalent they were indeed rampant in Jewish society and the scroll explicitly says that all who commit perjury and all who steal will be cleansed from the earth and you could say even that they would be evicted uh, from the earth. And so here are the consequences of sin. Now think of it this way. I want to use an illustration here. Uh, when we moved to Australia, the first thing that we did was we, we decided to rent a house, a nice little house just a few minutes down uh, the road. But in order to get this house, um, we needed to sign a lease. And on the lease were all of these conditions. And if we wanted to live in the house, we needed to abide by the lease and follow the landlord's rules. We needed to mow the lawn and keep the place clean and don't throw any wild parties. Some of our connect groups get pretty wild. But um, there were all these rules 
And if we break those conditions of the least, what will happen? We will get evicted. We will get kicked out of the house. And that's essentially, on a bigger scale, what's happening here. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament people of God have been given this covenant, this lease, if you will. And if they break the conditions of that lease, they will be driven away from the promised land and exiled, which actually did happen in the year 586 AD, uh, BC. In the year 586 BC, they were uh, removed from the land. And we see elsewhere that God's people have been removed, uh, removed because of disobedience. In Genesis 3, again, you remember that God's Adam and Eve uh, were kicked out of the garden because of their disobedience. And again, uh, we, we see that um, in the year 586, God's people were kicked out of the land because of their disobedience. And now here in the book of Zechariah, God gives Zechariah this vision and warns the people yet again that if they break the conditions of, his, of God's covenant, that they will be uh, kicked out of the land. Now imagine with me for a moment that the state of Victoria uh, took this same approach to sin. Uh, they start a campaign called the Clean Up Camp, uh, Victoria Campaign. And the goal of this campaign is to make Victoria safe, a place free from all crime. And in order to achieve this goal, the government decides that they need to have a zero-tolerance approach to any and all violations of the law, no matter how great and how small. They come up with a list of simple and easy-to-follow laws. Laws like do not murder, do not uh, hate, do not steal, do not lie, laws against vengeance, laws against slander, laws against jealousy, simple laws that are easy to understand. And the consequence of breaking these laws is also straightforward. There's just one strike, and then you're out. If you murder, you're kicked out. If you steal, you're kicked out. If you hate someone, you're kicked out. If you find yourself gossiping, you're kicked out of Victoria. And at the end of the campaign, the government discovers this. The campaign worked. There's, there's zero crime. There's zero theft. No breaking and entering. Gossip is at an all-time low. There's no bullying in the schools. What a wonderful place to live. There's just one problem. No one is left. The state is empty. What a perfect world. Here's the thing. This hypothetical scenario I just gave you is not so hypothetical. This is God's desire for the world. Though this is not necessarily the reality right now, this is God's desire for the world. That the world would be free of sin and that sinners would not rule the world. This vision is actually pointing us forward to another day, a day that has not yet come, a day that has not yet been fully realized. It's pointing us to the day of Christ's return. And when Christ returns to the world, this is the first thing that he will do. Part of his plan for the world is to rid the world of sin and to rid the world of sinners, to rid the world of war. And in order to rid the world of war, he will rid the world of selfish people. 
And his plan is to rid the world of robbery. And in order to rid the world of robbery, he will rid the world of every thief. And he promises to rid the world of confusion. And in order to rid the world of confusion, he needs to rid the world of those who cause confusion, those who lie and deceive. And so this vision of the flying scroll, I believe, is pointing us forward to that day when Christ will return and he will remove sinners from the world. And we see that in in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, that those who lie and steal, and there's a whole list of sins, that those who, who murder, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so that's the message here. The message is that that God will not tolerate sin nor sinners on this earth forever. Just as Adam was evicted from the garden, just as Israel deserved to be kicked out of the promised land, we need to remember that we have no right to this earth. We deserve to be evicted from the world that is to come. I think too often we think that it is our right to go to heaven, that somehow we've earned a spot in the world to come, that somehow we've earned a place in the pearly gates because we've been good people or we've done good things or we've been very spiritual or we've been very pious. But that couldn't be further from the truth. The Bible says the wages of sin is death and we are deserving of hell. All of us not just the big bad world. We deserve hell. I deserve hell. Your pastor deserves hell. Your friends deserve hell. Your parents, your connect group leaders, everyone from the Apostle Paul to the thief on the cross because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And here, this is sobering. Zechariah sees this vision of everyone who has sinned and they are being driven from the land And we deserve to be driven from the land. But when Christ came, and we need to understand this passage in light of Christ and in light of the New New Testament. When Christ came, he came not to get rid of us. He came to get rid of our sin and the penalty of our sin. And he did so by becoming a curse for us. And that's really interesting because here... We see in verse 3 these words that this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land, that everyone who has sinned, everyone who has broken God's law falls under this curse. They fall under God's displeasure. They fall under God's anger and disapproval. And And then Christ comes and the New Testament tells us that Christ becomes the curse for us. That in a moment on the cross, All of that displeasure, all of that anger, all of that wrath against our sin, all of that curse in that moment falls on Jesus Christ and the skies are darkened and the earth shakes and God's anger against thievery and his anger against lying and cheating and stealing in that moment falls on Jesus so that it won't fall on you. So that when you enter the gates of heaven and you meet your Savior, He won't say, 
may the Lord abandon you and curse you. He will say to you, may the Lord, may I, Christ, bless you and keep you and make my face shine upon you and be gracious to you and look upon you with favor. So instead of condemning us, God forgives us. And instead of canceling us, he cancels our debt. Instead of punishing us, he reverses, reverses our punishment. And he was only able to achieve this by being cursed for us. By, exchange, by standing in our place. By exchanging himself for us so that we might be blessed by God and forgiven by God. And it's only because of Christ that we are given access into God's presence. So that's the first vision. Let's take a moment and look at the second vision, the vision of the basket. And this second vision deals more with the removal of sin itself. So the first vision deals with the removal of sinners. The second vision deals with the removal of sin. Now let's look at verses 5 and 6. And again, this, there's this vision. And so you can imagine it um, on a screen, and there's different aspects of this vision. And on one corner of the screen, we see this, uh, this uh, woman, or this basket, sorry. And we notice that this, that this basket is filled with the sins of all the people living in the land. That's what it says, right? Look at verse 6. What is this? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity or their sin in all the land. So the basket represents sin. It represents uh, all of our transgressions against God. And it represents not just those obvious sins like lying and stealing, but hidden sins. I think that's why uh, there's a, a picture of a basket, because this basket represents all the sins that are hidden in the shadows. And what you'll notice here is peeking her little head out of this basket is what? A woman. Now, why a woman? You might be asking. Um, this particular woman represents sin. Does that mean that women are, I've got to be careful here, does that mean that women are more sinful than men? I'm happy to say, women, that the answer is no. We are equally sinful. There's a reason why this is a woman. In the book of Proverbs, we see that wisdom is also described as a woman. Does that mean that women are more wise than men? You might be thinking yes, but the answer is no. The answer is no. The reason that a woman is here is identified with sin simply has to do with the Hebrew language. Every word in Hebrew has just two genders, male or female. And the word wisdom happens to be a feminine word, and the word sin also has to be a, happens to be a feminine word. So both wisdom and sin are represented as women. That's the easiest answer I can offer you. So it's just, a, just symbolic of sin, and it's symbolic of people who are struggling with sin. And we shouldn't get distracted by the fact that it's a woman in the basket. But let's look at verses 9 to 11. Two more women appear, good women, and they've got wings, and they're carried by the wind. And you see that they take hold of this basket in the vision, and they carry it outside of the city, outside of the promised land. And where do they carry it off to? 
a place called Shinar. Now, does anyone know where Shinar is? I'll give you, I'll buy you a coffee if you can tell me. Um, Shinar is where Babylon is. And we know throughout the Bible, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, that Babylon is almost always associated with sin. It's the place of sin. Uh, Babylon, anyone, any Jewish person who was reading this would have heard the word Babylon and they would have had a bad taste in their mouth because Babylon was the place where God's people had been exiled for more than 70 years. It was a place that was associated with wickedness. You know, in the modern world, we uh, think we call Las Vegas Sin City. Well, in the ancient world, Babylon could be called Sin City. And throughout the prophetic literature, we're also told that Babylon will one day be destroyed. And so it was also a place of destruction. And so what God is saying here through the vision is he's saying, here is all this sin, and it's going to be carried off to the place of sin, and there it will be destroyed. So that's what the vision is saying. And it's as simple as that. Again, the second vision is just speaking of the removal of sin. And that, that's the promise there, that, that sin will be removed from the world. But that's not the reality that we live in today, is it? Because if you just look at the world, you'll realize that there is sin all around us. I mean, we suffer the effects of sin. We are sinned against by other people. And we struggle with our own sins, don't we? Each one of us here, if we just look back at, at our lives from the time of our birth till now, we'll be able to identify um, sinful habits that we've struggled with our whole lives. We allow our words to cause great damage and destroy relationships. We allow our pride to consume us. We allow our bitterness and our unforgiveness to prevent us from reconciling to others. And then as we reflect on our own sin, at times we think, well, what's the big deal? Who cares? But when you um, take a step back and look at the big picture, there are 8 billion people in the world saying the same thing. What's the big deal? What's the problem with sin? Who really cares? And we realize that that 8 billion people all sinning at the same time creates a lot of sin in this world and it creates a lot of chaos in this world. Not only do we sin, but people sin against us. It's sometimes in tragic ways. People carry scars with them their whole lives. People have been deeply wounded by the sins of others. And of course, as recent events this last week have reminded us, we live in a world where people suffer, where the pastor of a congregation has to bury his child because she's been shot and killed. That's the world we live in. We live in a world of bombs, right? We live in a world where one madman who seems to run his own nation the way he wants to run it sends air squads and, and bombs uh, cities and destroys innocent lives. 
And so we all know, we're all well acquainted with the world that we live in. I think the comfort that this vision offers us is it reminds us that there is a day when God will remove sin from the face of the earth. Where he will take all the sins that we've ever committed and he will cast them as far as the east is from the west. And we know that he's done that on the cross. He's forgiven us our sins. But there will be a day when that, that will actually become an even greater reality, when there will be no sin on this, on this earth, when all things will be made right, a day when the trumpet will sound and the Lord will descend and God will reconcile this world to himself. Now, I must confess, as I've, I've been thinking through this, and it almost seems like wishful thinking. It almost seems too good to be true at times. Because all that I've ever known is life in the sinful world. And I'm sure for you, all that you've ever known is life in the sinful world. All that we've ever known are the aches and the pains and the frustrations and the tears and the struggles against sin and the pains of being sinned against. And so to even stop and think about a world that might be different a world where none of this pain exists, and a world where the struggle against sin is not a reality, it's hard to imagine a world where that doesn't exist. But then we have to come back to this word, and we are confident that this is actually the voice of God speaking to us. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead speaks to us in this chapter, and he offers us that promise. And he reminds you that there is a day coming when, when the world will be swept clean from sin. And so we live, um, we live in light of that hope. And we live our lives persevering and pushing through and living for Christ in difficult circumstances and living, walking by faith knowing that that day will one day come, that we will one day join our loved ones who have gone before us, who are now living in that place without sin. And we long for that day. And some of us long for that day more than others because some of us here have experienced far more pain and suffering than most others. And so, I think this chapter has a lot to say to us. It gives us a lot to think about, doesn't it? I think for those who are not in the faith, it really serves as a warning, doesn't it? Because in the first vision, we are reminded that God will remove sinners from the world. That, um, that those who do not, do not trust in Jesus Christ are under God's curse, under God's wrath. That's what the Bible says. But it also offers comfort to believers, doesn't it? Because it reminds us as Christians that we are under God's blessing, that Christ became a curse for us, and that we have been completely forgiven, that we are not under God's wrath and we are not under God's curse. And this second vision reminds us of that certain reality that there is a day that is coming when the trump shall sound and the Lord will will descend, and he will rid the world of sin. And we look forward to that day. 
So let these visions challenge you and let these visions comfort you and let these visions remind you that God has forgiven you as we look back at the cross and he's, there's a coming day when we will be free completely from the reality of sin in this fallen world. Perhaps you have put your faith in Christ. He is your Lord and Savior. Let these visions comfort you and remember that he has removed the penalty of sin and one day he will remove the presence of your sin. Why don't we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word and we thank you um, for the challenge that it offers to us, that it reminds us that we need to be reconciled to you. And thank you for the comfort that it offers us. That it reminds us that you have removed our sin from us and that one day we will live in your presence, free and without sin. Lord, we commit to you all those who are struggling and suffering that your spirit may go with them this week and that you might Offer them uh, the experience of your peace, which transcends all understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.